0: Oh, I love our pastor. So glad he's back in town, and we're about to get back in the rhythm. I was, uh, I was telling the first service, it's, uh, it's good that uh, Pastor is starting a series on David uh, here in September because today I want to preach out of the life of David, and um, if you're here, um, you should be here so that he can correct everything that I miss say today. Um, but we are uh, we're really looking forward to that and uh, excited about it. I want to uh, talk to you today, like I said, uh, uh, out of the life of David. Uh, if you have your Bible, um, we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Uh, we're going to jump to the Psalms and look at Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. Um, but before we do that, I want to kind of um, I want to give you a little bit of a backstory as to uh, that precede the events that are about to unfold um, in what will be King David's life. Most of you know that uh, David, as a young boy, uh, God raised up a prophet named Samuel. Samuel came and he anointed David. He uh, he prophesied that David would indeed become the king of the nation at some point. Uh, David lives out his days as a shepherd boy and uh, he develops um, his gifting. He's faithful to the Lord. Uh, David, at some point uh, in his teenage years, we see him go to war with the Philistines and he slays the giant. And David's name begins to grow with great renown. Um, The Bible says that, that people would cheer for the present king until David came and they would even cheer louder for David. And so his popularity grew But as it grew, so did the envy and uh, the critical nature of the sitting king, which was King Saul. So much so that David literally had to run for his life for many, many years. Uh, He lived in the wilderness uh, just trying to evade uh, King Saul as uh, he tried to hunt him down. At some point, King Saul dies in battle. David goes and he assumes the throne. And the story, the events that we're going to talk about today, it's really in the prime of King David's life. David has really rallied the nation of Israel together. Uh, The nation, they are sitting in a a really good place economically and spiritually. David has rallied them. Um, The the 12 tribes of Israel, they had had a lot of infighting and bickering, and David has kind of brought them together and unified the nation. It is really an incredible moment for David when he finds himself um, in, in a very peculiar scenario. He's in his late 40s, early 50s when the Bible picks up this story uh, in 2 Samuel. Let's read together. The Bible says, In the spring of the year, when kings normally go to war, David sent Joab, his commander, and the Israelite army to fight the Amorites. They destroyed the Amorite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Late one afternoon, after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to her, and when she came to the palace, David slept with her. She had just completed the purification rites after her menstrual period. Then she returned home. Later, when Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant, she sent David a message saying, I am pregnant. Then David sent word to Joab, his commander of the army, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent him to David. When Uriah arrived, David asked him how Joab and the army was getting along and how the war was progressing. Then he told Uriah, Go home and relax. David even sent a gift with Uriah as he, as he was going home after he had left the palace, but Uriah did not go home. He slept that night at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. When David heard that Uriah had not gone home, he summoned him and he asked him, what's the matter? Why didn't you go home last night after being away for so long? And Uriah, this great man of honor, he replies, The ark and the armies of Israel and Judah are living in tents. And Joab and my master's men are camping in the open fields. How could I go home, wine and dine, and sleep with my wife? I swear I would never do such a thing. We'll stay here then today, David told him, and tomorrow you may return to the army. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next. Then David invited him to dinner and got him drunk. But even then, David couldn't get Uriah to go home to see his wife. Again, he slept at the palace entrance with the king's palace guards. So the next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and gave it to Uriah to deliver. The letter instructed Joab, station Uriah at the front lines where the battle is most fierce. Then pull back so that he will be killed In battle. And Uriah the Hittite was killed along with several other Israelite soldiers. And when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. And when the period of mourning was over, David sent for her and brought her to the palace, and she became one of his wives. Then she gave birth to a son. But the Lord was displeased with what David had done. Now, Father, as we open your word, Our prayer is that you will descend with the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray today, God, that you will speak to all of our hearts, that you will help us to uh, learn and to mature to be everything that you're calling us up to be, God. Please help us, Lord, in this moment. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Uh, many of you know, my, my wife and I, we lived in uh, Panama City for, for a long time. We were born and raised in outside of Pensacola, and we lived there most of our lives. And then um, we moved to Panama City, and we served in a church there for about nine years. And um, the last couple of years, we, we had two children um, during this time frame. And uh, the last couple of years, my son was, was young. He's about 12 now, so I guess that was about 10 years ago. Um, he was just a little guy. And I remember something that happened one night when it was a Saturday evening. We were preparing to get them ready for, for church the next Sunday. And so we were making sure the kids had their baths and ironing their clothes and laying them out and everything. You know how it goes. And um, I'll never forget, I was in... Uh, I was in one room, and we had gotten my son out of the bath, and we had sent him in the, in the living room to watch cartoons, and I was taking care of something in the bedroom, and my wife was tending to our, our oldest daughter, um, in, in another room, and I'll never forget this very distinct sound I heard, and if you're a parent, uh, you can imagine with me, it's not just a distinct sound, it's a very troubling sound. It was the sound of my son choking on something, and, um, I remember rushing out of the bedroom as soon as I heard it, and my wife and I almost collided because we were coming from two separate rooms. We were trying to get to him as quick as we could to find out what was going on, you know. And um, when we got to him, um, he was in deep choke, He was clawing at his neck, and he was starting to turn colors. I mean, it was it was super traumatic um, in the moment. My wife runs over, and in the heat of the moment, she just grabs him. She picks him up like this, and as soon as she picked him up, um, whatever he had. Lodged in his throat, dislodged, and you know he swallowed it. And uh, we were paranoid, we were freaking out, we didn't know what to do. And so we called uh, a friend of ours, uh, that's an RN, and uh, we just asked her. We said, you know, what do we, uh, what do we do? And she said, well, well, was it poison? Did he swallow poison? And I, I said, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what he swallowed. You know? She said, would well, he have any poison laying around? I said, well, if we did, we don't have it laying around anymore. I, I don't know. We don't just make a habit out of letting poison, you know, lay around, and so she said, well, you know what, it's better just to be safe than sorry, why don't you take him and take him to the ER, they'll give him an examination, they may give him, um, you know, a scan and find out what's going on, and so uh, we decided to do that, we took him to the emergency room there in Panama City, and uh, the doctor came in after a little while, an examination, some x-rays, and he came in and he said, okay, mom and dad, I've got good news. And I said, well, that's great. He said, but I also have bad news. I said, well, that's not so great. Um, what's the good news? And he said, the good news is that we are 100% sure that your, that your son did not swallow poison. And I said, well, thank God. That is amazing. I'm, I'm so thankful for that. He said, but the bad news is that he did swallow this. And he took an x-ray and he shoved it in the light. And I, ha- I have a photo of what he showed us. Uh, this is his little body. He's about two years old. I'm not sure if you can see in the belly portion right there, um, right there, uh, it is a metal screw uh, that he swallowed. And um, I mean, here's the, we feed our kids. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, I don't, I don't understand. I love to eat. And we, we eat a lot and we eat all the time. I'm not sure what possessed him to make him want to eat a metal screw, but I'm not sure if he liked the flavor, if he just needed more iron in this diet or whatever. But anyway, he... He decided to eat the screw, and so, uh, you know, we're, we're mortified in the moment. Well, I don't know what this means. Is he going to die? You know, I don't know what this means. And so we said, well, what, are, what are we going to do? And the doctor said, well, you got, you got two options. He said, you can, uh, you can, you know, let it settle in and see if he can, he can pass it just naturally. And... Um, he said, "If you do that, there's there's the possibility that um, it can it can really mess up his bowel uh, system, the the you know it's serrated edges and everything, and it can really do that. If you do that, you know there's a possibility it'll pass and it'll be fine, but the possibility exists that it'll it'll cause like lasting effects on his life." And and I said, "Well, we." we definitely don't want to do that, you know, what's the other option? He said, well, you can take him, we'll transport him to another hospital by ambulance, and uh, a couple hours down the road, and they have a specialist there, and they'll just go in, and they'll, they'll put him to sleep, and they'll extract it from his belly, and, and all that, and so we did that, and he turned out fine, and nothing, you know, nothing really, uh, he doesn't really have any lasting effects uh, from that, but as I thought about that, I thought, when we look at the events that transpire in the life of David and the sin that he got so entangled in, I think about that scenario with my son and that screw, and I realize that that screw was never meant to be a part of him. In the same way, sin was never God's original design for us. We were never We were never built with the capacity to be able to take sin into us without it destroying us in the innermost parts. And as we progress and as we grow in our Christian faith, we have to learn how to deal with sin. And and let me just say this. When I say we have to learn how to deal with sin, I don't mean how to manage it, and I don't mean how to coddle it. I mean how to kill it. I mean how to remove it from our system so that we don't have these lasting effects uh, that they bring about. See, we're, we're all born with, with what we call uh, a, a sinful nature, okay? Uh, the, the official term is, is original sin, and it basically means this, that when, when Adam and Eve, when Adam sinned in the garden, when he rebelled against God, that sin not only affected him and broke him spiritually, and it not only affected his immediate family and the earth, but it affected every human being that's ever lived throughout all of human history. And so we are born with what we call a spiritual, um, a, a spiritual brokenness. We are fallen, we are separated from God, we are broken in our relationship with God because of this thing called sin. As a matter of fact, um, Jesus' is half-brother He had several uh, um, siblings, but one of his half-brothers, James, wrote an epistle. And in this, he talks about sin and and sin's nature. And he says that sin, in its very nature, gives birth to death. In other words, sin, its it's primary objective for the human person is to seek and to destroy anything that it is able to attach itself to. It's like trying to, to, to take a Tasmanian devil... And make it your pet. It's it's going to destroy. If you try to like put it in a room somewhere, it's going to find a way out. And if you put it in another room, it's going to destroy everything that's in there. It's one of these things that its sole purpose is meant to destroy and to bring about destruction. And so when we look at the life of David, we see this so crystal clear we see the events that, that unfold in David's life and we just see death after death and destruction after destruction transform his life from what it was to what it will become. And so as we look at the life of David, I kind of want to take us through some things today. I want us to observe some things about the life of David, particularly in this, uh, this, this event. Now, when David begins... Um, we notice some things as we observe the scripture. We notice some things that David is either doing or he's not doing that are indicators that David is already treading down the wrong path, right? So we find David at the very beginning of this portion and what is David doing? He's not at war when everybody else is at war. So David in this moment He's shirking his responsibilities. He's not doing what he should be doing. Not only is David not doing what he should be doing, but what we find in David is that he is is entertaining some things that he should never be entertaining. You notice that when you look at the culmination of all these events in David's life, David probably never in his wildest imagination would have thought that simply starting back here would end the way that it did way down there. You understand that? He started over here just kind of shirking his responsibility. Maybe he was being lazy. Maybe he just didn't feel like risking his life. Maybe he didn't feel like giving counsel. Maybe he just wanted to kick back in the spring of the year. Not really sure. But we find David leaving his physical responsibilities, which opened him up for spiritual attack. And so David neglects his responsibilities which then leads to lusting after a woman, coveting another man's wife, which leads to the sin of adultery, which leads to lies to cover it up, which leads to the drunkenness of another man, which leads to the murder of another man, which incidentally leads to the murder of other men within his command, which then ultimately leads to a cover-up. You cannot tell me that David sat back here in the spring of the year thinking, I can't wait to see how all this transpires. That's not, that's not David's thought. David was not, this wasn't a meticulous plan that he had constructed, that he was going to go down this path. It just so happened that one thing led to another, because David was entertaining some things that he should not have been entertaining. Have you ever seen somebody walk through a spider web? Like from a distance though. <laughs> have you ever seen somebody, it's really fascinating. It's, it's, some of the, it's, it's some of the best free entertainment that, it, that a person could ever, uh, could ever go. But, but from a distance, you see all this like really bizarre, erratic movement. You're like, why are they doing, you know, you're like. You know, and they're screaming and making noise and jumping up and down. And you're just like, what in God's name is going on over here with this person? But as you know, the closer that you get to that person, you can see what you couldn't see at a distance. You can see what they're so wrapped up in. When I think about David's situation right here, I think about the commander of the army, Joab. And I think there's no possible way from a distance. Joab is on the battlefield, and all of a sudden, David is sending this communication that's really bizarre. It's really just kind of out there, and I'm sure from a distance. Joab is looking, and he's saying, what is David thinking? Why is he asking for Uriah? And now all of a sudden, he's sending back Uriah after a few days, and he wants Uriah to die, but inconsequentially, other people are going to die. Why is David doing all this stuff? It's because Joab could only see what was going on from a distance. But God allows us, through the prophet Nathan, not just to see what's going on in the distance, but he allows us to get up close and personal. See, we have the privilege of history. We have the privilege to be able to look back at David's life and say, buddy, don't do this. Please, for the love of God, don't do this. But in the moment, the people that were most observing David's life had no clue what was really going on as they watched it from a distance. You've seen this in people's lives, right? You've seen people that are making just really um, erratic decisions with their life or with their finances or with their family. You're thinking to yourself, man, he is 78 years old. Why is he buying a Porsche now? You know, and uh, they're, they're making decisions with their family that just nothing really makes sense. But I know it's true and you know it's true also. That any time that myself or you begin to look at other people and, and we begin to look at our own lives and we begin to make all these decisions that just do not make sense, there is usually a trail that leads back to a point and we never anticipated it to go the way it did. And so David learns the hard way. David learns the hard way that his, his decisions carry grave consequences, even if they were unintended at the beginning. We see a lot of consequences that David faces. Uh, we see that in the scriptures, we find that David, uh, God allows David to experience a sense of inner turmoil. The Bible says that, that David describes it as the heavy hand of the Lord was upon him, that, that David, he wrestled day and night, he lost sleep, his, his body was evaporated of, of any kind of strength, he was just zapped from this sin that was, that was destroying his inner man. We see that he loses his joy. The Bible says that that, that he cries out to God and he says, Father, please restore to me the joy of your salvation. You've broken me. God, restore me. And we see these consequences unfold in David's life on a spiritual level. And if we're not careful, what we can do is we can begin to assign blame to God for the events that unfold in David's life instead of placing the rightful blame on David himself. You see, it's, it's one thing, to be able to look and say, God, why are you being so mean-spirited? Why would you remove the joy of the Lord from David? Why would you cause this inner turmoil and this destruction to continue in his life? But we need to make no mistake about any of this. When God is allowing these consequences to unfold in David's life, and furthermore, when God allows the consequences of our decisions to unfold in our lives, we always must keep in mind that these consequences are merely grace that has been draped in the, in the guise of consequence. It's the mercy of God. When you look at God removing the joy and the sustenance from David's life and, and allowing this inner turmoil, we need to understand this is not so God can punish David. It is not about punishment. It is about, it's about preservation. It's about God trying to get David's heart back to himself. We so can misunderstand the, the heart of God. When, when we go through difficult times, when we make terrible decisions and we, we live to face the consequences of them, we can assign God as the bad character in the narrative if we're not careful. But rest be assured, when God acts, he acts in mercy. Even in his judgment, he acts with mercy. When we look at the Garden of Eden, we see David, or excuse me, we see Adam and we see Eve. They willingly and deliberately disobey the Father's guidelines. He tells them one thing in paradise not to do. And they do the one thing that they were asked not to do. They deliberately broke. God's guidelines. And so God removes them from paradise. He removes them. He puts an angel at the entrance of the Garden of Eden so that they can't come in. And he gives them other consequences. But we look and we say, couldn't have God have done this instead of this? But what we got to understand, when you look beneath the surface, even with Adam and Eve, him kicking them out of the garden was an act of God's mercy. It was an act of his protective hand. This is why. Adam and Eve had had bitten the forbidden fruit. They were now in a state of brokenness and sinfulness. They had begun the sinful nature. They had fallen from God's grace. If God would have allowed them to stay in the garden, they would have had access to the tree of life. If they would have partaken of the tree of life in their sinful state, they never would have been able to be redeemed. They would have eternally lived in their sinful state. So even, it is so important for us that we got to understand that even in the harshness that we view of God sometimes, it's always, the motive is always to bring us back to the Father. It is not about shame. It is not about guilt. It is about the conviction of the Holy Spirit that draws us back to him. God allows David to have a a self-righteous spirit And we look at that and we say, why would God allow something so vile? God allowed David to have a self-righteous spirit so that when the prophet came and gave him a parable that David would tell on himself. It's it's a powerful notion, but we see that God allows David even to have a self-righteous spirit. And the one that we like least about all these is that God allowed David to have collateral damage, to experience the death of his son. And not just the death of his son, but uh, further along David's life, although God blessed him and, and gave him more children and more victories, the, the infighting among his family remained violent for years and years up, in, up until his death. And so we remember all of these things about the life of David. We remember how sinful he was, and we remember the consequences that he bore. But if we're not careful, we can remain so focused on David's sin. And we can look at David and say, David, you're a scoundrel. You are like a dirty guy. Like, who would do something like that? And I'm the same, I would say the same thing about him. But let me tell you this. If we are not careful, we can get so caught up and we can become self-righteous over a man of God like David. Listen to me. The New Testament says that David was a man after God's own heart. He was a man of God who made a lot of mistakes, If we're not careful, we can focus on so much of the mistake that we leave out the redemptive elements of David's confession. And so in in the Psalms, we see in Psalm 32 and 51, we see this beautiful confession after the the prophet confronts David. And and David comes clean, and he begins to confess his sins to the Lord. and, And really, he begins to confess his sins to us. Psalm 51 says this. David cries out, he says, have mercy on me, O God. Because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins, wash me clean from my guilt, purify me from my sin, for I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just." For I was born a sinner, yes, from the moment my mother conceived me, but you desire honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there. Purify me from my sins, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again. You have broken me. Now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sin. Remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. Then I will teach your ways to rebels and they will return to you. Forgive me for the shedding of blood, O God who saves. Then I will joyfully sing of your forgiveness. Unseal my lips, O Lord, that my mouth may praise you. Do not, you do not desire desire a sacrifice or i would offer one you do not want a burnt offering the sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit and you will not reject a broken and repentant heart oh god today for the next few minutes i want to i want to focus not so much on the elements of david's sin and and his failure i want to talk about the confession of david and the repentance of david I want us to see David not only in his fallen state, but in a state of brokenness and humility and restoration with the Father. I want to talk to us a little bit about the idea of confession. Now, confession is primarily one of those things that we hear about oftentimes, more so probably in the Catholic church than we do in the evangelical church or the, or the Protestant church. But I think it's important for us to understand that, that the idea, the concept of confession is a very valuable component of our faith, and it's one that, that shouldn't be neglected. Now, when we talk about confession, there, there, in my mind, there are two different levels of confession. The first level of confession is what we call a confession of faith, okay? This is when a person first comes to faith in Christ. The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is an original confession that frees me from the eternal consequences of sin, okay? Now, the first level and the second level at conversion, they kind of, they kind of intertwine. They kind of come together. The second level of, of confession is what we call the confession of failure, so when a person comes to faith in Christ, it is, it, is, um, it is most important that they understand their failure. They understand their sinfulness, their brokenness, their rebellion against God, but then they confess their faith that Christ has overcome their sin. That is conversion. That is when a person becomes regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit, and they become a new creation in that moment. It is two levels of confession that are tied together. Now, The first level of confession, the confession of faith, is the confession that happens originally. It's it's the, the first time confession that alleviates us from the eternal consequences of sin. The second level of confession, the confession of failure, is an ongoing confession that frees me from the congestion of sin. Okay, so it is one of those things that is so vitally important because it has a way of cleansing the soul. It has a way of of outing all of the dirty laundry and getting the residue out of our soul. It's so important for us to understand the concepts of, of confession, not only to God the Father, but to other people also. Jesus, in the Lord's Prayer, he says, uh, um, Father, forgive us of our sins as we forgive those that sin against us. In the book of James, in the epistle, we're also taught not just to confess to the Father, but James teaches us, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you might be healed. And so, like I said, we oftentimes think of confession um, more so as a part of Catholicism or a part of the Catholic Church. And, and we're not a Catholic church, okay? Although one time, um, I, I preached a sermon one time, and I had a young guy come to me right after. He gave me a big hug, and he said, thank you so much. He said, you are my favorite priest ever. And uh, I almost corrected him, but I thought, no, I'll take it. I'll take it. Um, but we are not a Catholic church. But the Catholic church, primarily when they think of confession, they do not think of a person making confession to God. They typically think of a person making confession to another person. Understand what I'm saying? So in the Catholic church, we often see this exchange of confession from one person to a priest. On the other side of the coin, we have the Protestant church or, or who we are, the evangelical church. And oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes there is not very much of an emphasis of confessing sins one to another, but there is definitely the element of confessing our sins to the Lord. Because in, in this realm, what we understand is we have direct access to God. We don't need a human mediator. We have Jesus as our mediator, so we have direct access to God. But what's important to understand is that outside of Catholicism or, or the Protestant church, When we look to the New Testament, we see confession on both of these levels, not either or. We see a huge emphasis that we need to be sure that we come clean to God with our sin, that we are repentant of our sin to God. But again, in the New Testament, we see a double emphasis. We see an emphasis of that, but then we see that we are to be sure that we make confession one to another. And if we aren't careful, We can de-emphasize or over-emphasize, and the truth is both need to be emphasized because both have the potential to bring spiritual, emotional healing on the inside. We we need not underestimate the power of of confession. C.S. Lewis um, he was not Catholic, but he would go at times to um, a, a Catholic priest and he would make confession. And one time he was being interviewed and he said that the experience of confession was like a tonic to his soul. It rejuvenated his soul, it cleansed him, it invigorated him so that he could go and he could conquer the day again. And so if we're, if we're not careful, we can, we can kind of set some things aside that are really so beneficial for us. And I know we live in a day um, in, in Christian America, I know we live in a day where there is a lot of different types of teaching and a lot of Philosophy, and there are a lot of uh, understanding of different types of theology. I understand we we got all this, and there are some who who say that there's you know there's no longer a need to confess your sin or repent of your sin because once you made that one-time confession, it's it's not important anymore. And and I would just say I understand what they're saying because yes, at that original confession, when you confess your failure and the uh, and the supernatural work of Jesus for the atonement of our sins, yes, you're saved. You're saved, and nothing can can do take that away. But this secondary level of confession to God when we sin and and to others when we sin, that is not about salvation. That's about sanctification. That's about growing and maturing in the process and trusting people and embracing the family of God that God has given us so that we can be everything that we've been called to be. And so David does this in, in a beautiful way. He gives us just a phenomenal example of what it means to confess and to repent of sin. In Psalm 51 and in Psalm 32, he does this. And so as we look through these things, I just want to give you a couple of of things that David did that should really stand out to us as we work our way through the process of confession and repentance. The first thing David does is he reminds himself of God's goodness and he reminds himself that he cannot earn God's goodness. He reminds himself, he throws himself on the mercy of God. He says, God, because of your loving kindness, not because of my loving kindness, because of your mercy, because of your goodness, would you come and would you be merciful to me as a sinner? And what we've got to understand when we fall, when we fail, we've got to be a people that quickly throw ourselves on Jesus. We have got to be a people that understand this is not a balanced scale. This is not a, well, I messed up here, but I'll give a little bit more in the offering this way. That is not what this is about. It is not a balancing act system. It is a system where we come wholeheartedly and we say, Father, be merciful to me, a sinner, because without the grace of Christ, I am nothing. And so David does this. He, he models this so brilliantly for us and David not only does that but he aligns he realigns his perspective of sin with with God's perspective of sin David realizes he says he says Lord I understand that this wasn't just a sin against my own body and this wasn't just a sin against Bathsheba and it wasn't just against Uriah or the other men who died or even the kingdom of Israel but father this was a sin against you This was rebellion against you. This was my flesh conquering and winning the day. And Father, I need your mercy in this. I don't know what it's like in in your spiritual life, but I know, I definitely know what it's like in my spiritual life. And um, I oftentimes have the tendency to do something when I sin. I have the tendency to really soften what I have done to something that makes it not as gruesome. Does that make sense? So, for instance, if, if I tell a lie, I may go to the Lord and say, Father, I am just so sorry that I haven't been completely honest about everything. And I wonder if the Lord looks at that and he says, Oh, you mean you lied? <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? David, in this moment, David doesn't go to the Lord and he say, Father, I'm, I'm really sorry that I hurt Uriah's feelings. I mean, he was a good guy. I'm so sorry that, that I hurt Uriah. no, no. David goes to the Lord and he says, Father, I'm sorry for the bloodshed that I have caused. He calls it what it is. And my tendency, and I would, I would speculate that many people's tendency, when we go into confession with the Lord, we kind, of, we kind of make it a little more palatable. We make it not as violent of sin as what it really is. We don't really call it what it is. And David gives us a beautiful perspective. Of this. He says, no, 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 we have to come into a place for utter and total forgiveness and restoration where we call it like it is because if we're calling it something and God is calling it something else, something's not working right. It's like going to a restaurant. You know, some things just drive me crazy. I love being able to preach to you because you let me just kind of tell you what frustrates me from time to time, but uh, I know uh, going to a restaurant. I always, almost always, I love sweet tea and Coke. Those are my two, like, go-to, go-to drinks. And, and I, it irritates me sometimes when, when I go to a restaurant and I, and I look at the waitress and she says, can I get you a drink? And I say, uh, I'd like to have a Coke. And she says, oh, I'm sorry, we don't have Coke. How about a Pepsi? And in the moment, I, under, I know why she has to do it. She's trying to be polite and, and give me something. But in my mind, I'm saying, this is not the same thing as this. Like, why would you offer me a Pepsi when I wanted the Coke? No, I don't want a Pepsi. I'll have water with lemon. I don't want a Pepsi. I want a Coke. The more confusing is when, you know, you say, I'll have a Dr. Pepper. And he says, oh, I'm sorry, we don't have Dr. Pepper. How about a root beer? And I'm like, those are definitely not the same thing. Like, this is not this. Why are you calling it the same thing? And I wonder sometimes when we go to confession to the Lord, I wonder how many times that we say, Father, I need you to forgive me for this. And the Father looks and he says, this is not this. This is what you did. You didn't do this. These are not the same thing. And we have to be a people that come into alignment and we come clean with God to the fullest extent. We need to get on the same page with God regarding sin. It's not about what we think is sinful. It's not about what we hope is not sinful. It's about what God calls sinful being sinful. And we need to come to him and confess and see things as he sees things. It's kind of like when you get into an argument with your wife. You know what this is like. You've been in an argument with your wife, or um, I, I'm specifically speaking to men for a reason right now, okay? But when you get into an argument with your wife, and um, you're at an impasse, and so you separate for a few minutes or a few hours or for a few months, I don't know, and uh, you, uh, you kind of walk away, and you're just like, I'm not even going to deal with this. And then finally the man, he, uh, he musters up his courage, and he says, well, if, uh, if there's going to be peace in the house, I guess I'm going to have to be the one to do it. And so uh, he, he goes over to his wife and, and he says, baby, I am, I'm, I'm just so sorry. You know, I'm, I'm so sorry. And she looks at him with that glimmer, a little bit of compassion and understanding, but a whole lot of judgment. And she just looks at him and she says, you're sorry? And he goes, yeah. And she says, for what? She knows why you should be sorry. She knows she's not. She is far smarter than you. She knows why you should be sorry. Listen to me. She just wants to make sure that you know why you should be sorry. She wants to make sure that you're on the same page and that you're not just apologizing so that things can be put away and you can move on. She wants to know that we see this thing for what it is, and we are in agreement that you were wrong in doing this so that we can move forward. Listen to me, the Father is the same. He wants to know that we understand our grievance. He wants to know that we understand the depth and the brokenness of what we have done, and he wants us to call it, as he calls it. And so David does all this. He cries out to God for mercy and cleansing. This is a moment of like true repentance for David. He has come to the end of himself after months and months of bearing the voice of the Holy Spirit. He has come to the end of himself and he is repenting fully and completely. David, is not just remorseful. David is repentant. You see the remorse in his writings. You see that he was sorry for what he did. But David was not just sorry for what he did. He turned from what he did. In the life of Judas, we see a person that was remorseful for betraying the Son of God. But we don't see a person who was repentant for betraying the Son of God. There's a vast difference in being remorseful and being repentant. A repentant person leaves that sin, and they choose to follow the Father and to leave that thing behind. And David does it with such eloquence and with such integrity. He does it in an amazing fashion. And then finally, David humbly receives the consequences of God without blaming God. And once once David uh, confesses and he comes clean with the Lord and the forgiveness of God washes over him, David, David uh, he sings again. He begins to, to use his giftings again. He understands spiritually from a new perspective. He commits, he resolves that. His, he's not going to just let his failure be his failure, but he's going to teach the coming generations how to obey the Lord and how to serve the Lord without making the same mistakes that David's made. But as much as anything, David makes a commitment to look forward into the future. David begins to talk about Zion and how God will rebuild the walls, and and it's symbolic. He's talking about the physical, but he's also talking about himself. And, And what you see is a complete... Uh, 3.60, David comes completely full circle from the man of God that he was going through the sin back to the man of God that he is when he comes clean and comes to repentance. Listen to me, so much so that the prophet that exposed David's sin, the Bible says that that same prophet comes back to the next son that, that David has as a child. And the prophet, the Lord gives the prophet a word, and the prophet names David's next son, Jedidiah. And the word Jedidiah means loved by the Lord. It's God's graciousness on full display. He's saying, David, you've been a man of God your whole life, and you went through the rigmarole, but you have come back around, and you and your offspring are going to be loved deeply by the Lord. It is a beautiful, beautiful picture of redemption. It's so amazing. Now, practically speaking, because we all wrestle with sin, and we all struggle. I just want to just quickly go through a couple of things that, uh, a couple of ways that we need to respond when we find ourselves falling in, into sinful patterns. And so uh, the first one I would say is this, is that after I sin, I should call out for mercy, cleansing, and a steadfast spirit. I should just throw myself on Jesus. Number two, after I sin, I should confess to the Lord. Listen to me. Proverbs says, whoever conceals their sin does not prosper, But the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. You know what's amazing about the mercy of God? You know what's amazing about the mercy of God? Is that when you come to confession, when I come to confession, it is utterly and completely safe. Listen to me. Uh, Pastors taught us for years that there's nothing we can do to cause God to love us anymore there's also nothing we can do to cause God to love us any less. And I would tack on a sub point to that and say, there's nothing that you can confess to make God love you less. There's nothing. Listen to me. He already knows. He already knows. Everything is naked and exposed before him. It is a safe environment where the king of the ages he says, listen to me, come. There is a throne of grace. There is a seat of mercy. Just come and throw yourself on it. And we see David do this. So it is so safe. And what we understand when we come to confess our sins to the Lord, we understand that, that in the moment of confession, listen to me, it is, it is no longer just words that we are speaking that are evaporating into the air. Our words become weapons of warfare. They become weapons of warfare that pierce the spiritual darkness that that has surrounded us and smothering us. And so the confession clears the air, and it gives God operation power to move and to breathe and to break down the darkness. So we've got to be a people that come clean with the Lord and confess to him. The third thing, after I sin, I should confess to others. Now, this is where it gets incredibly messy, super risky— but totally invaluable. Listen to me. There are a few different times that we need to confess to the Lord. When, when I sin independently, privately, whatever, when I sin, I need to confess that to somebody. Not for my salvation, but for my sanctification. Not, not, not so that I will be uh, you know great, but because I will grow. I need to be a person that comes clean with the Lord. When, when I have sinned against another person, I need to come clean with that person. When I'm holding something against another person, I need to confess that to that person. Now, this can be incredibly, like I said, it can be super volatile. You've got to make sure that you do it the right way, but listen to me, it is so worth doing it the right way. And furthermore, let me just say this, if, if people begin to come to you, if you, are, if you are spiritually mature and they begin to come to you and they say, man, I just need to confess some things that are going on, when they begin to come to you, make sure that you are worthy of their confession. Make sure that, that you are in a place of spiritual maturity and not gossip, that you can handle the things that they're telling you. Paul wrote to the Galatians, he said, listen, he said, um, those who are spiritually mature will gently restore those who have fallen from grace. And we've gotta be a people that are, that, are, that, are, that are gentle. And listen to me, we've gotta be a people of compassion. You realize when somebody comes to confess their sin to you, it is not the time for judgment. They're they're trying to come clean. It's not the time to condemn. It's not, listen, it's not even the time to give advice, probably. It's the time to sit back and just listen and let them process. They are trying to be obedient to the scripture. It's a time for deep compassion. Listen, a few years ago, I um, I uh, I was riding a roller coaster with... Um, a, a close friend, we had been at the park all day, and then near the end of the day, I was like, oh man, come on, one more ride, one more ride. I, I used to love roller coasters before I got old. And um, I used to love roller coasters. And um, so I remember a few years ago, we were there, and I was like, one more ride, and they agreed to go on the ride, and so um, we, we went on the ride. And you know when you come to the end of the ride, and you're like, <gasps> you're out of breath, and you're like, that was amazing. And then you know, you're like, oh, I, oh, I think I'm going to vomit. You know, you, you kind of say that. Because everybody says that, right? Well, this person sitting to my left said that. They said, that was amazing. I think I'm gonna vomit. And I said, Oh, me too, that was so good. And then I remembered that about 15 minutes before we got in line for the ride, that they had downed a a thing of chili cheese fries. And um and then all of a sudden, I look over, and, and we're, I mean, we're still strapped in, people, okay? We are still very much strapped in. And all of a sudden, I look over, and it's, you know, all into the hands, right? Not over the side, not out the front, you know, just, just all in the hands. And I'm a sympathetic vomiter, okay? I mean, I'm, I'm very, if I get a whiff, I'm done, okay? And so I'm like... Oh you know, and 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 for 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 some asinine reason, I'm not really sure the logic behind it. I don't I still to this day don't I talked to them about it, I can't get the logic behind it, but but after they vomited in their hand, they didn't throw it over the side and they didn't throw it in front of them and they didn't hold on to it. They decided that they were gonna throw it over my lap onto the ground down there. And, I'm still befuddled to this day. Why would any human do something like that to another human? I don't understand it. And let me tell you what, I blew it. I mean, I blew it. I was not compassionate even a little bit. I was just, I was irritated and I was just like, get me the heck off this ride, get me out of this park, I wanna go home, I wanna shower. Um, I mean, it was just, it was just, and, and I blew it so bad. And I say that to say, that sometimes when people come to us to confess their failures, it feels like they've just vomited all over us. It really does, because if you're spiritually in tune, it's almost like you're absorbing some of their pain. Like you begin to empathize in a way that that you really never thought you could. And it can feel like they're vomiting all over you. But listen to me, in that moment, when, when, when you were hearing about the disgust and the stupidity and the, and the really, really dumb decisions that they've made, that is not the moment to express your disgust for them. That's the moment to express your compassion and your understanding and your own failures. Listen to me. The people of God need the people of God. God gave us what he calls a spiritual family. And listen to me, I don't care what family you're in, there's always going to be conflict on some level. But God has given us instruments, he's given us tools, he's given us scripture that instruct us on how to resolve conflict in a godly way that will be beneficial for all parties. And so we need to learn to do this because there's one thing I know is that if I have a problem with a brother or if they have a problem with me, if there is a problem on this level horizontally, then there is a problem vertically here. There's, there's congestion here. And so what, what I'm trying to say is that we need to confess so that we can clean this, this, these pipes so that there can be a flow of the Spirit and brotherly love and affection. And so it's, it's incredibly important that we do this, but it's incredibly important to the Lord that we do this so that we can be the family that he's called us to be. Number four, after I sin, I should contend for complete reconciliation. And let me just say this, oftentimes complete reconciliation Means the last level of of complete reconciliation oftentimes means that I'm able to forgive myself, and that's a very difficult thing to do. I remember my my uh, one of my kids played soccer for years and years, and um, uh, I remember one time uh, like when they were like five, I think, and uh, they, they threw the ball in, you know, in soccer, they threw the ball in, and, and all the kids were like kicking each other in the face trying to get to the ball, and, and the ball just so happened to hit my child's hand. Like it wasn't trying or anything, it just kind of hit the hand. And I'm telling you, if that kid didn't chase that referee down, and just say, it, it hit my hand. It hit my hand. And the referee was trying to be gracious, like a high school kid, a referee. He's like, oh, okay, bud. You know, and, and no, but it hit my hand and, and just ran and chased me around. And he's like, okay, bud, we're, we, we're moving on. The game is continuing to play. He's like, no, no, it, it hit my hand. Do you know what a handball is? You're the referee. And the whole time, the referee is like, look, I've forgotten about it. It's over. It's in the past. The game continues. Be a part of the game. And I wonder how many times Father looks at us and he says, man, why are you so stuck back here in things that I've forgiven? Because you can't forgive yourself. Stop chasing me down and telling me how awful you were. Get on with the game. Move on with life. Forgive yourself. Embrace the forgiveness of Christ and and be empowered to do that. And when we do it, as David did, we are able to move on with our lives. And so I I need to wrap this up. And Uh, I'm going to ask our worship team. Actually, I'm going to go ahead and ask if you're a ministry team member. I'm going to go ahead and ask if you'll come to the front. Um, The last thing I want to say is that after I sin, as David illustrated, I should continue on in the faith. Paul said this beautiful statement to the church at Philippi. He said, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on the goal of Christ. And I just want to kind of remind us today, I kind of want to remind us that that our failure is never final unless we allow it to be. And I want to remind us that when we come to the Father and we confess our sins, that he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I want to remind us that as we come to confession with each other and with the Father, that He has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. And I want to remind us today that there is mercy for all who come to Him and seek forgiveness. I um, I'm closing real quick, but I want to I want to share something with you. My um, I'm not sure how you feel about. Um, Prophetic words and insights, or visions, dreams, stuff like that. Um, we we believe in our church family that um, those things are still enacted today. We believe that God speaks prophetically from time to time and and gifts people in really um, supernatural ways. Um, I'm not a prophet, okay? I don't I don't really have um, uh, that's that's not who I am. Um, but the Lord, uh, from time to time, very sporadically, the Lord will speak to me kind of prophetically. And um, a few weeks ago, I was um, I was praying through sermons, as, as like Pastor said, I've, I've preached several times the past few weeks, and I was, I was in prayer a few weeks ago, and I felt like the Lord gave me a vision or an image or something, whatever you want to call it, um, and um, this is what I took, I'm going to tell you what it is, and then I'm going to tell you how I kind of interpreted it, and then if you don't believe me or want to believe me, that's fine, okay? Um, what I saw was um, I saw a, a person in like an open area, kind of like kind of like this, and I saw um, a bunch of like strings. I don't know if they were strings or ropes or anything like that, but they were kind of like floating around like an anemone or something like that, and they, they were just kind of floating. I saw a person standing in the midst of it, and they were just kind of, they weren't really going anywhere or doing anything, they were just kind of, you know, kind of standing in the midst of it. But above them, I saw a platform that was, that was raised. And um, I noticed that the person, as they were standing here, the ropes weren't like attached to the person and dragging them down. The, the, the ropes weren't even like, they weren't tied to them so they couldn't go to the platform and get out of it. It was nothing like that. It was just that the person, for, for whatever reason, it was almost being like in the thick of the weeds. It was like they were just kind of walking and, and couldn't really, you know, lift themselves up on the platform. And as I began to pray and kind of process with the Lord, um, I'll share with you what, what I feel like the Lord was sharing um, with me. Is that when I look, when I look at our church family, um, I don't really see people... That are you know wrestling in this all this gross sin and you know adultery and pornography all this kind of stuff i don't i don't see people that are just making crazy decisions with their life like we see in the life of David. Um, I see a very healthy vibrant church family i see I see a lot of maturity I see a lot of a lot of growth and a lot of intentionality um, but as as I had this vision um, I, I began to to pray and studying all this and, and long story short I kind of i kind of felt like I had an understanding of it better when I looked in the scriptures, in the book of Hebrews. The Bible says in Hebrews that we should lay aside anything that hinders us in one segment, And then it says, and any sin that so easily entangles us. And what I took that to mean is that there are two different levels here. This is not just talking about sinful activity of people. It's talking about things that hinder and sin. And when I had this, this vision, it wasn't that I felt like this person was like wrapped up in sin and they were being drugged to hell, you know. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't anything like that. But what I did sense is I did sense that they were in the midst of something that wasn't dragging them to hell, but it was hindering them from going to where God wanted them to go. That's, that's ultimately what, what I sense. And so I don't know what that means, okay? Like I said, I'm, um, uh, I'm not a prophet. But I'll tell you in my heart of hearts what I feel like it means, and then that's between you and the Lord. But but what I sense that it means is that there's probably not a lot of people uh, here in the church family that are struggling with these seaweeds of sin that are just pulling them down and they can't do anything. But I sense that that there were probably some folks that are just kind of like in this area where um, it's not really that they're tied down and it's not really sinful activity or anything like that, but it's just like loose ends that are preventing them from going to where God wants them to go. And I don't know if that means confession between um, maybe yourself and the Lord. I don't know if that means that that there needs to be some very difficult conversations that that people have with one another, that they confess that they've hurt someone or someone confessed. I don't know what that means. But in my mind, I just saw that there um, are, are perhaps some folks that are not so entangled in sin, but there is something that is hindering and it just needs to be taken care of. Those loose ends need to be tied off so that they can go to the place where God wants them to be. And listen to me say this. I believe that God will do it every single time. I believe as we obey scripture, as we obey the leading of the spirit, he'll do it every single time. And I'm telling you this, our church family, we are so poised for a continued powerful move of the spirit here at this church. We are so poised. We, we are in such a good place on every single level, and we are so desperate to see God move in new and fresh and unique ways. But I would hate so severely for someone who had every opportunity just to lay things aside that hinder and not go to where God wanted them to be and to feel like they got left behind. And I don't want that for me. I don't want that for my children. I don't want it for my wife, and I don't want it for you. It's friends and family. And so um, today what we're going to do, I know we're going a little bit late, but I'm going to give you an opportunity um, to respond. Um, as a matter of fact, I'm going to go ahead and ask you to stand with me. And thank you for indulging uh, me for a minute, but I want to give you an opportunity to respond if you, um, if you need any level of prayer or healing or anything. Any of these folks can help you. If you don't know Jesus, the most important thing you could ever do is talk to me or one of these folks, Pastor Mike, and we will be glad to help you come to know Jesus. Um, But maybe it's a moment where you just say, Lord, there's some things that I need to to confess. Uh, Maybe there's a conversation that I need to have with somebody, but I need to make sure I pray this thing through and do things the right way. Uh, I don't know what it is. Or maybe you'll say, I'm good to go. I got meatloaf in the oven. And that's okay, too. That's okay, too. But uh, I want to pray for you before we're dismissed. And uh, I just appreciate so much you let me take some time here today. Father, we are so grateful for the mercies of the Lord. We thank you for the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus so that we could be a part of your spiritual family. And I do thank you for the spiritual family that we can come and confess and that we can be known by you and known by each other, that there's no shame attached. You're removing all that. So I'm asking you, Lord, even in this moment, to sweep over your people as a congregation and melt away shame, melt away condemnation. May the righteousness of Christ rise up over us, Lord, and bless your people. We love you this morning in Christ's name. Amen, amen, and amen. The Lord bless you this morning. If you got to go, we understand. If you'd like to come for prayer, please do. Um, We love you so much.